you are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Marturet and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. So today we're with Andrew Waugh, founder and director at Waugh Thistleton Architects, and we're going to talk about the future of the architectural profession. So this is a very broad and interesting topic, but we're going to try to frame it and keep it um, relevant. So can you start by telling us what you think um, are the challenges that the architecture industry is currently facing? Wow. Uh, The challenges, I think, are massive. I think, you know what challenges? Flip that and call it opportunities because I think that the profession is facing massive opportunities, you know, historic opportunities for the profession in the sense that, you know, the biggest issue for humanity is climate emergency, right? And that in Western Europe, North America, about 50% of our carbon emissions are down to the construction and the management, the refurbishment of buildings architects are the thought leaders for that industry construction industry and so we need to be driving that industry to in a direction that will begin to reduce those carbon emissions because you know really the onus is on us it's such a serious situation such a responsibility and yeah actually i think for architects it's a it's an opportunity it's an opportunity to demonstrate to society that you know that this is a I was going to say worthy, but I think worthwhile kind of professional pursuit, mm-hmm. you know, because I think for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, architecture has been in a bit of a kind of cultural morass, you know, in a kind of, in kind of like, you know, navel gazing kind of titanium shape making pointlessness. <laughs> and and I'm so glad you say this because it's part of what I do professionally. I've been saying to whoever wants to listen that architecture is 40 years or 50 years behind the times and the way it communicates what it does to the public there's no (laughs) there's just if we look at other industries and what's happening in those um there's very interesting things happening that architects are not paying attention to absolutely so um to kind of catch up on those 40 years of uh lagging what what would you see as those opportunities? Where would you see those opportunities to be? And and I'd like you to be a little more specific. Well, I think we have to take a lead in looking at how the built environment, how the kind of the you know how we can um, how we can employ the built environment to work better for humanity. So that's as our cities densify, how can we build new buildings which have a far lower carbon footprint? 
And I mean predominantly embodied carbon. So the carbon that comes from the construction process, from the building materials, because my unpopular view is <laughs> that we've actually got, you know, operational carbon, you know, we're pretty good at. You know, we know how to keep our buildings pretty thermally tight. You know, we know um, how to uh, to build those buildings to lead or to code or whatever. And actually, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty stringent conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think what's far more of an issue is looking at existing buildings and seeing how we can upgrade those to meet current building code, how we can change our habits as a society so that, you know, we take a jumper off, take a, take a jacket off in the, in the summertime and put a sweater on in the winter, you know, that would help a lot, you know. So I think that the architecture profession needs to think very carefully about how we can, as a body, help this situation, how we can be part of a solution, you know. And I think that thinking about keeping existing buildings, reusing existing materials, recycling materials, you know, the reduce, recycle, reuse, you know, those sort of the holy trinity of kind mm -hmm. of, of uh, you know, of low carbon, I think is a really important thing for architects, for the architect's profession to begin to engage with. So you and I had that conversation a little while ago um, about new ways to to do architecture. Because my my thesis on the on the topic, part of the problem is that architecture remains a service for the elites. It's yeah. a custom made product. It's a service, but that leads to custom made products for people who can afford it, and that's a very small segment of the population. So um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the opportunity for architects to make themselves relevant to the general public and find ways to render their design thinking and outputs available to people that may not have been able to afford it until now. Yeah, it's such an interesting point because, you know, architects generally have, you know, two kinds of client or, or three kinds of client. You know, you have, as you're pointing out, the kind of, you know, the private client, the, you know, the one-off bespoke house or, or interior. And then you have your, your unseen client, you know, your client who you provide who you build offices for or, you know, or who you build um, apartment buildings for. And then you have your direct kind of professional client relationship it might be a developer or a, you know, or, a, or city hall. But the unseen client is the vast majority of user or occupier that the architect works for. And yet we have no interface with them. A client told me years ago that my job was to provide them with the sufficiently mundane you know, the white box that nobody would complain about. And so you kind of, you realize that actually, you know, in architecture, in order to kind of, in order to commodify buildings to be that kind of, you know, lowest common denominator that nobody's going to hate, you might not like it, but as long as you don't hate it, that's, you know, that's going to sell, right? As our cities densify, mm -hmm. we have this requirement for commercial use, for, for residential use. So in, in many ways, the kind of the developer is actually, you know, they're selling into a kind of, into a hungry market. So, as long as nobody hates the building, they're probably going to buy it. So then, you know, the job of the architect becomes that kind of sufficiently mundane practice. So I think that, but if you look at, I mean, you were talking just now about other industries, other types of, you know, consumer product, which might, you know, which obviously, you know, it's our home, our, you know, our, our place of work, the places that we spend every time. But if you look at the way in which people build other things like cars, you know, or, or mobile phones or kind of, and how they adapt those, how they give kind of customer sort of pleasure, you know, that you can feel ownership over something that is seemingly fairly, you know, standard, ubiquitous, but actually, you know, has so much opportunity for customization, for choice, 
And yet we don't do that in architecture with so many of the people that we're providing for are disenfranchised. And I think the marketing argument of not hating something as a selling point is is really weak. Oh, it's mean, a low point, it's, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's really aiming very low. And you mentioned the car industry, and I find that fascinating because the car industry has managed somehow, I'm not sure how, but it's been over, I guess, the last 50 or 60 years to become more than transportation devices. They've become expressions of people's individuality mm -hmm. for better or worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why you have so many different brands and you have luxury brands and you have cheap brands, you have somewhere in between, you have sports brands and everyone can find the car that speaks to themselves. And I'm a car enthusiast and I always <laughs> look at cars and I'm like, this is a car for me. I hate this one. Yeah. And there's always kind of that. I mean, you can really, you can really kind of tell quite specific things and you're sending out a message mm -hmm. with the car that you have for sure. You know, not even just the model, but the color, the interior, all those things are opportunities for self-expression. Absolutely. So how what do happened? we, how do we <laughs> see that happening in architecture and why is it not happening already? That's, that's kind of the puzzle to me because we're in a time, very exciting time where prefabrication has become very easily, um, available it's everywhere and if you know how to use it you can actually do great architecture with prefabricated systems whether they're entirely made in a plan or it's just a kit of parts that you assemble on site there's many different options but we don't see much of it not really not at enough. all if you not enough and it's not just about choice it's also about quality i think you know the quality of the of the building that you get from a prefabricated process a factory made process is always going to be better mm -hmm. you know you wouldn't trust somebody to build a car in your driveway for you you know, but yet that's the kind of equivalent of how we build a building. Yeah, exactly. You know, send all these ingredients to a site and then, you know, slowly, you know, slowly kind of clumsily probably put them together. And yet we know that actually the constant innovation that you've seen in car manufacture in just less than 100 years has been incredible. You know, a kind of a great quote from Nissan is, we make the same car every seven years. <laughs> you know, because every car mm -hmm. that they have, you know, half a million choice combinations, more, you know, so that every single, every single one is different. Every single one allows you as a purchaser, user, you know, driver allows you to make those choices when you're buying that car. Yeah. Even new, if they ever you know? do, because most cars are not on the market for seven years. No, sure. Exactly. So it's, yeah. it's a pretty fascinating idea that you can it becomes mass customization in some way in the sense that there's so many options available that you can literally pick and choose the stitching on your bucket seats yeah. or the color of your steering wheel. And yet it's still made in the same plan, still made just as fast as if they were all the same. So, so I think that's where there's really an interesting lessons for architects to learn. Um, I'd like to bring this back a little bit to your practice and how, or rather what you've been doing um, as a firm director and, and owner um, differently and what kind of results you've seen as, okay. as, a, as part of kind of looking at things from a different perspective. Okay. So we, um, you know, I started in practice straight from university. So I worked as a model maker while I was setting up in practice, but within six months of finishing university, I was in practice mm -hmm. uh, with a friend of mine from, from architecture school. And so we never really learn how to build. <laughs> you know, we didn't learn how to run an office either. We didn't learn how to build. And so as we started getting built projects, you know, as we moved from mostly interiors projects to, to begin to start constructing things, we were learning from scratch. And mm -hmm. the process was really unpleasant. You know, we, you know, the process of building things, we just were not enjoying. 
And yet something that we had worked in practice toward, you know, in a couple of years, maybe we'll be building a building, you know, as we chose another kind of type of urinal for a nightclub or whatever, you know, maybe one day this is all going to culminate in building buildings. And when it did, the kind of dissatisfaction of that process was really, um, you know, was, was really pressing on us. So when we were... F- you know, when we were kind of going through this, the notion around prefabrication, I mean, I was always a massive kind of Buckminster Fuller fan at school anyway. So the idea that we could look at how we could prefabricate in different ways was something that became increasingly attractive to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really with kind of arguments around looking for materials that had a lower impact on the environment, you know, less kind of carbon emissions, the notion of timber or the idea of timber and timber construction became more and more obvious as a solution to that. So then looking at how we could prefabricate in timber, looking at engineered timbers, looking at prefabricated wall sections is something that the practice, me, the practice became increasingly interested in. And now that's something that we, you know, that we research, that we design, that we look at constantly innovating in those sorts of areas. And that is... Sometimes it's, you know, prefabricated elements. Sometimes it's prefabricated bathrooms and kitchens. Sometimes it's prefabricated modular units. You know, so it's really kind of quite, it depends on the context, the client, the brief, um, so many different things. But we're always, you know, I guess, constantly innovating. You know, I have a little kind of, I sort of wouldn't call it a rule, but like something that I'm keen on in the office, which mm-hmm. is that we always use the same basin and the same WC and the same taps Mm-hmm. and try and use lots of the same window details mm-hmm. so that we can really concentrate on the proper stuff. You know, the idea that somebody in my office, you know, that we have a set amount of hours that we can work on a project and that somebody's thinking, oh, I wonder what wash hand basin we should use, you know, rather than actually thinking about how can we innovate the construction process? How can we begin to be part of this solution? Yeah, that's very interesting because uh, I don't know that I've heard that being done anywhere else before, <laughs> but it, it makes sense because the the wash basin can be changed in 20 years and that's beyond <laughs> your control, but the way the building is designed and assembled is entirely under your control. So if you can innovate there, it makes more sense. I also think that kind of architects, you know, the, the kind of the process of architecture has become kind of so often like a glorified shopping trip, you know, whereby kind of like the architects kind of wandering through spending somebody else's money on black taps, mm-hmm. you know, and you just think, oh God, really? <laughs> yeah, it's surface stuff. I, I yeah, totally. frankly have a little patience for it because there's a lot of, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of designers out there that do... We'd be uh, here all day if you did, I think. Yeah, they do... Um, it's all cosmetic stuff, like yeah. especially in... You see it a lot in commercial interiors where projects look good in pictures, but when you visit them, there's there's nothing to it but textures and colors. And no. It's like, so is that where you spend all your money? Like, how do you... Isn't your job to come up with like a novel way for that restaurant to operate so they can you know, be more profitable and serve more people and and kind of those things. Absolutely. To think about the kind of sensibilities of the person in there, the space, the light, the process of construction, the kind of like, you know, I think that it's one of those, another one of those kind of, you know, that surface kind of attraction of architecture has become something that has waylaid the culture of architecture, you know, has distracted us from the main message. You know, it's what, you know, I often refer to as the kind of 50 shades of brick that we've been going through for the last couple of decades, in, especially in the UK, where that seems to be the prime obsession of architects. is like choosing, finding another type of brick. And you think, God, really? Come on, guys. It's like, you know, and I think that that, for me, this kind of, you know, the climate emergency, the kind of the pressure, the presence of that kind of, um, you know, situation in for humanity is so important. It's such a, a such an amazing and responsible opportunity for architects to engage in that actually that kind of you know what we're talking about before the kind of titanium bubble architecture you know it's kind of cultural robot banging itself again and again and again in the corner Mm -hmm. of the building you know not it's a do you understand what i mean it's kind of like 
So I think that they're, yeah, I think it's exciting times. I can relate that to the commonly accepted definition of insanity, which is right? doing the same thing over and over, <laughs> expecting different results. Yeah. Um, so I want to uh, dive a little so deeper. Funny. I was just talking about that this morning. <laughs> yeah, we all do from time to time. Yeah. Um, I want to go a little deeper in the idea of innovation and, and what does that look like in your office? How do you guys innovate and what kind of results you've seen so far as part of integrating that in your, par- in yeah. your practice? So innovation for us, um, how does that work? I mean, I think it's just kind of, you know, we just talk a lot and we draw a lot and we make a lot of models and we don't have a hierarchy. We obviously have a hierarchy. You know, the older you are, the kind of more boring jobs you do is the kind of hierarchy that we work on but actually you know we don't have this kind of we have a culture where if there's a student at the table in a meeting that student would be expected it would be hoped that that student would voice their opinion on on the design situation in front of us mm-hmm. you know we so we innovate through you know through ideas through discussion you know and looking at different industries so and also i think through working with others as well so we're very keen to reinvestigate the way in which architects work with other consultants, with engineers um, specifically. So we're not looking to engineering as a kind of problem-solving exercise. You know, we don't scribble something down on a napkin and ask them to solve it and then go out for lunch. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, it's actually, you know, to engage with an engineer, to engage with a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. You know, like a car manufacturer, the way in which you design a new car is you talk to your supply chain, right? Yeah. You, talk to, you, talk to the, you talk to the automotive engineers, you talk to the um you know the aerodynamics experts you talk to the steering wheel manufacturer you talk to the tire manufacturer you're looking for you know collecting innovation from those different people mm-hmm. from other consultants from the supply chain and you incorporate that innovation you know within a single ent- entity now that as a process of design has is evidently so successful and yet so different from the way in which the construction industry works you know and so what we try and do in our practice is to talk to manufacturers you know, get them in the office all the time. You know, crazy people that phone up with some kind of new notion of, you know, wooden wooden glazing, you know, see-through wood, for instance, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever it is, kind of like, you know, new kind of uh, hardwood nails. Or what it, I mean, I can't think of an example now, but, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of like just constantly looking to see what is being done within our industry, but also with looking at other industries and how they operate as well. And so when I hear you say that, what it makes me think about is that, architecture seems to be trying or architects seem to be trying to reinvent the wheel on every project um it's such a a, you know what that's how we describe ourselves to the world as though we are you know everything is this kind of idea explosion of complete um unique invention now that's obviously not true (laughs) that's completely disingenuous because it is a visual collage everything that we do is a visual collage of things that we know already yeah you know things that we've seen that we like you know i you know, I feel really fortunate to work in an environment in London with loads of really creative, interesting architecture practices mm-hmm. who are doing great stuff, you know? And in some ways, because some of them are doing such great stuff, I don't need to do the stuff that they're doing because I can work with what they're doing and employ it into it what I'm interested in mm-hmm. doing. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. it needs to be seen as a as a kind of collaborative, kind of cumulative process rather yeah. than these kind of like, oh, you know, these sort of you know newtonian kind of concepts of kind of like you know the app the apple idea falls on your head and you kind of come out with this kind of amazing burst of inspiration you know that's not in my view not how design works good design is an iterative process it comes from understanding the algorithms of the choice in front of you you know the parameters if you like of the choice in front of you narrowing things down sure there's in, intuitive moments but you know it's really the more you know about something the 
better you will understand it. Mm -hmm. But if we bring it back to the car uh, analogy, that's exactly what's happening in the car world. It's a, a, a million of small incremental changes, which if you jump 10 years forward, cars are completely different from what they were 10 years ago. Yeah. Or if, if you look at cars today, they're completely different from what they were 10 years ago. Not necessarily in, in their function, but there's lots of things. And not always in a good way. I mean, we're not talking about a perfect industry mm -hmm. either. You know, like architecture, car design does reflect the society from whence it came. Yeah. You know, you look at the Trabant or the fact that, you know, everybody in North America drives a massive four-wheel kind of like vehicle because mm -hmm. they don't spend any money looking after their roads. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a four-wheel vehicle just to get through the potholes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's That's got like, yeah. you know, you go into northern Norway right, where it kind of snows five meters, nobody's got a four-wheel vehicle. They all drive VW Golfs because the roads are great. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, you know, so, and also the electric car, you know, the whole thing about how the electric car was kind of like, you know, sort of, sort of, you know, suffocated in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. the kind of, but now, you know, you can see things are really improving and the, you know, the rebirth of electric cars, third time round, right, mm -hmm. is really working well. And, it's an industry which is really innovating fast. I mean, I've got an, I just bought an electric car. I too love cars. I'm a terrible environmentalist, but I, I you know, and I got rid of my Alfa Romeo and, <laughs> and I bought an electric car, mm -hmm. you know, begrudgingly. And now I love it. You know, I love it. It's kind of super light, super fast, super quiet. No, I'm not that, not that successful. <laughs> no, it's an i3, a BMW. Oh, those and are I, nice too. They're really nice. And the thing I like about those cars is that they are designed to be electric cars mm -hmm. you know they're not like you know a mini with the battery in the back you know it's like which hasn't changed at all it's like that car has you know super light structure bigger wheels you know it's everything is designed in it yeah from the kind of notion of being you know low carbon from it being a battery powered car which i really so and, i really, really enjoy it bmw has always had that kind of innovative kind of almost side business they build a lot of conventional cars that people buy by the truckload and then they have those like kind of halo cars that yeah. are very interesting. Yeah. So. Like like Citroen used to. Yeah. You know, those Citroens used to be so beautiful. Every kind of like, now they're a bit of a dull kind of car. But yeah, the innovation there, you can see. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's another example I want to touch on and particularly because it's a client of yours uh, as far as, um, you know, good design and innovation and building for a long term is Vitso because you, yeah. you designed their plants, correct? Well, Anglosec, I did. I worked on it. I worked on the design, but it was very much a collaborative mm -hmm. process. So the guy that owns Vitsu, Mark Adams, mm -hmm. um, had a very clear brief about what he wanted to achieve. And he was very much involved in the design, as was James O'Callaghan, the, the structural engineer, and as was uh, Martin Francis, who, who you know, was in RFR and is an you know, mm -hmm. most amazing kind of uh, engineer and product designer. And so actually, it was the four of us that did that building. I would never lay claim to that building. And I think that to work on a you know, a building as product was, you know, really, I mean, I had a fantastic time, you know, working with three incredibly talented people. Well, if uh, Mark Adams' uh, Instagram account is any indication, he seems to uh, be very particular, but also very sensible. Particular, uh, sensible and sensitive mm -hmm. as well. You know, sensitive to, I think, you know, to the people that work with him, you mm -hmm. know, to light, to materiality, to detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, a, he's an inspiring character. Was that influenced at all by the their product line? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the kind of, you know, the the staple ingredient of the brief was always at every point, you know, is it adaptable? Is it, you know, can this be used again? Can this be, is this demountable? Is this kind of, you know, is this precise? All the kind of, all the, the ingredients that make up the beauty of that shelving system and that furniture, those pieces of furniture that had to go into the building. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think 
particularly for James O'Callaghan and myself involved in construction, it was quite shaming, <laughs> you know, because you could see that actually product design, product manufacture is so much more sophisticated, mm -hmm. so much more successful, advanced than architecture and construction. You know, we felt kind of relatively Neanderthal compared to the kind of sophistication of the processes and the ambition that those that Mark and, and, and Martin had. And so what, what were some of the lessons that you've learned in doing that project that could be or you have applied already to architecture? I think that working with those people has given me a confidence to follow an instinctive desire toward kind of clarity and simplicity in, in the architecture that we do. You mm -hmm. know, that, that actually, you know, following through on a commitment in terms of in, in terms of a design commitment you know it's very much that kind of you know always go back to the sketch you know every design decision should be made on the basis of a clear set of design proposals you know and that kind of clarity of intent i think is something that once you set the bar that high you know you always want to reach it and so i want to touch on something else that you mentioned briefly you said you described this project as a collaboration between you the client the engineer and who was the fourth person martin francis so an engineer as well an engineer as well okay and that's not typically how architects talk about their work no um what difference do you think it makes to talk about a project or a body of work as a collab true collaboration mm. between architect client and other consultants mm. as opposed to saying I designed this, it's my project, and mm. those people just worked on it. Yeah. You know, I mean, architecture has that kind of, it's a sort of Jedi school of thought, isn't it? That we're kind of, you know, that we're we're the ones, we're the true leaders, the mm. God complex, mm -hmm. you know, of kind of like our special clothes and our special instruments, and society doesn't really understand us. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just think that that really, you know, is uh, that's really not got us anywhere. I mean, architect is master builder, right? The meaning of architect. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in construction and, you know, I think that you need to be able to do that well, basically, and functionally and, you know, and the idea that we do anything remote of other people is, is obviously quite crazy. You know, so many architects won't even refer to themselves as being part of the construction industry. They see themselves somehow as kind of like hovering above it, mm -hmm. you know, somehow better than that, mm -hmm. which I think is really kind of quite antisocial. So how does that impact the quality of the built environment in your opinion? Well, you can see it all around you. You know, actually buildings that don't really relate to urban context, buildings that don't think about how people will inhabit them, how people will exist around them, buildings that seem to be much more about kind of a branding exercise or a PR exercise for the developer and for the client than actually successful for the inhabitant or the user you know, or the city dweller themselves. I mean, I think we're kind of, you know, I love Ram Coolhouse's optimist gene kind of statement, you know, mm -hmm. and I really subscribe to that. But the flip side of it is, you know, is the profession is in a mess. And, um, you know, it's fairly directionless, fairly rootless in many ways. Mm -hmm. I think the, pro the process and the practice of engineering is so much more sophisticated than architecture. And you can see that with BIM and parametric systems. The engineers are the ones that are picking that up and running with it. You know, and that very soon will become the basis for urban planning. It will become the basis of kind of massing projections. And unless architects get hold of that, and I think that architecture, you see, the thing is the reason why I get, I suppose, frustrated or upset about that is because I think architecture is incredibly important for humanity, you know, for the quality of our urban environments, for the quality of our cities and for the quality of our buildings, of our homes, you know, 
is you know the essence of that has to be an architectural quality and that if architects allow themselves to be marginalized because of their kind of attitude towards society then that would be really sad <laughs> well and architecture is shelter at the at the, at the basic level yeah. and if we build shelters that do not take care of people uh, the right way then the whole exercise is pointless because if you have harmful materials in employed in the construction process or you have a layout that confuses people and mm. prevents them from doing their job properly or, or any of those things, um, then it's not good architecture by any measure. And I think one of the challenges in the industry is that um, we don't spend enough time talking about well-being in the built environment because it's not sexy. Yeah, And people want to talk about this you know, there's. Uh, I'm not going to speak to the quality of it, but I'm just going to use it as an example for how architecture is marketed. There's a, a condominium that's being built downtown Toronto that was designed by Bjark Engels Group. Mm -hmm. And it looks interesting in the renderings. I can't judge the quality of it because you can only do that when it's built. But it was solely marketed on that strength alone. Yeah. Um, and they brought the Serpentine Pavilion here from a couple of years ago as a promotion promotional thing. Not to say that all of this is bad, but there's no talk about how this is going to serve the city, how it's going to help uh, the inhabitants of that development to living fulfilling and healthy lives and the people in the neighborhood around it. Yeah. Um, and so what's the what's missing in the in the discourse in the public discourse about architecture for us to be able to bring that back to the forefront? Um, it's just not very sophisticated. Do you know, they're kind of like, those buildings are not very, you know, they're complex, mm -hmm. but they're not sophisticated. Mm -hmm. You know, they aren't really, they're not really, sorry, I kind of interrupted you. I didn't mean no, to interrupt you. They're kind totally of, you know, they're sort of, they frustrate because although you can see that they are as inanimate objects, they have an aesthetic, you know, they're aesthetically often, especially Bjork Ingalls, especially, you know, with, with that kind of, you know, with those sorts of architects is that they have an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. to them you know they are sophisticated mm -hmm. on that level but they as you say they don't really function in terms of an urban environment an urban context you know they are these kind of individual you know they don't feel social they are kind of like just these little individual explosions you know which don't make a city in my view there's no kind of there's it doesn't feel like that's a social exercise it doesn't feel like that's for the good of humanity and, and your comment about sophisticated versus complex is very relevant because to me the most significant buildings and i'm speaking from my personal opinion mm -hmm. um, i'm a huge mis van der rohe fan yeah. and every one of his buildings is extremely simple but extremely sophisticated and you can be talking about the farnsworth house which is in a uh, suburban context so it can live on its own and it doesn't really have an impact on its surroundings other than the immediate surroundings you can talk about crown hall that's more of a semi-urban environment but then if you take any of his urban high-rises the ibm building in chicago the td center in toronto the seagram building in new york they're all incredibly um different to the city yeah um in a very simple elegant subtle, subtle way yeah. and i'm not saying it's the only solution but um that seems to have gone away, this kind of elegant sophistication, not trying to overcomplicate yeah. things. Um, and now there's also, and I mentioned that to you before, there's also that kind of overcomplexity of buildings in the way they're built, especially in the, in the envelope systems, yeah. where you have 25 layers of different materials, a lot of which are um, 
petroleum based mm-hmm. and not very sustainable. It creates envelopes that, that are airtight, which can be good if you have good um, mechanical systems, but can be an issue if you don't. Um, but buildings don't have no connection. At least large buildings have little connection to their surrounding environments. I grew up in a house where if you wanted to get rid of the steam in the bathroom, you open the window. Yeah. There was no electrical vent in it. Yeah. And in the winter, it might, got a, it might get a little cold, but you just close the window after 10 minutes and yeah, everything sure. was fine. Yeah. And and I almost think that, and that, that was a house built in the 70s. It wasn't an old house by any stretch of the imagination. But I almost think that we've kind of lost this um, ability to interact with our buildings, which force us to learn how to operate them yeah. on very subtle levels. No, no, sure, absolutely. What's I mean, your take on that? I, you know, well, okay, so there's so many kind of points of reference in that. <laughs> I think that, you know, that sort of building as theater, you know, the kind of the, the dramatic spaces, the kind of constant drama of the form is, you know, it's not, it doesn't provide a kind of, it doesn't provide a building or a city or a home of, of, of calm, you know, and of, you know, a place somewhere where you can kind of be at home, reflect or whatever. So I think that, you know, so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is about, the sort of the complex systems that you're talking about i think that the temptation is always to become more complex when trying to overcome a problem you know so we know that we you know for many years have been using too much energy to heat or cool our homes so the answer that we've arrived at is to make the systems of heating and cooling increasingly complex whereas actually we probably should just be changing our habits slightly, you know, dealing with slightly warmer, slightly colder spaces, you know, learning how to adapt. I mean, a friend of mine bought a passive house in London and was really excited about the fact. And I saw him a few months later and I said, well, how's it going? He said, honestly, it's a nightmare. You know, we, first couple of nights we slept in the house, it's triple glazing, you can't hear a thing, mm-hmm. you know? And then all we could hear was the kind of motor running all the time, the kind of, kind of like, you know, of the, of the mechanical ventilation systems, mm-hmm. you know, so he said, you know, after, after a few weeks of like, just not sleeping, we managed to get into the loft and turn them off, mm-hmm. you know, and then finally, we got a good night's sleep. But the second night of a good night's sleep woke up in the middle of the night, hardly able to breathe because mm-hmm. they're, <laughs> they're running out of oxygen in their airtight house. Yeah. So what do they do? They went and cracked a window open. And so passive is a bit of a misnomer in that really? case because yeah. it can run without the systems, right? And also I think that any, like you were just alluding to, I think that, that those systems which you need to exist within in order to survive, you know, actually that doesn't seem to me to be the solution. You know, the simplicity and the clarity of a Miesian solution should be applied to these situations. The mm-hmm. problem is, is that when, I, in my view, is that, you know, is that architects and construction when faced with the challenge to reduce energy into buildings were, you know, were encouraged to take a solution which meant more complex construction, more materials, yeah, and therefore that kind of fed the industry. You know, it feeds the industry of construction, mm-hmm. feeds the industry of development. Whereas actually, you know, it's not attractive to the kind of to a kind of capitalized system to do less. That doesn't really work with our supply and demand led culture you know i think this is something that we're discovering as a practice more and more is that actually in order to shift that paradigm away from the kind of consumer society a carbon-based consumer society mm-hmm. to reduce carbon you need to actually reappraise a lot of the social systems which we have taken for granted and yet don't really reward us well you know people aren't happier in the societies that we live in you know it's not really working very well and 
ultimately, the more the architecture feeds that dysfunctional machine, the more evident that the architecture that represents that society just doesn't work. That makes a lot of sense. And I don't think we're going to go in that conversation because <laughs> it's for another debate. Okay. But there's the whole idea that I'm just going to briefly touch on it, that as we've become more urban and civilized in many ways, we've lost the connection to the, the tribe. Yeah. That was kind of the social system that worked for millennia. Yeah. And now we went from maybe a couple, a few dozen people as part of the same tribe to a nuclear family of two parents and maybe a couple of kids. And, uh, and there's a lot of things that are a lot harder to accomplish in that context because the, you don't have, and I'm not talking about tribalism as in hunter-gatherers, but even just 100 or 200 years ago, um, there were more tight-knit communities of people that would help each other. So they may not have had the wealth that we have today, but they also could do a lot of things within that community of people that knew and trusted mm -hmm. each other. Um, well, that's I, all the kind of search to of kind of like, you know, um, syntax, space syntax stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. About kind of, you know, interactions within an urban environment. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. They're not, it's not healthy. You know, we need to live in our cities in a different way. We need to, you know, but that's, I mean, again, that goes back to nature as well. Mm -hmm. And the question which you were also kind of beginning to, 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 to broach, which is how important is it for us to be, you know, close to nature and understanding natural materials, I guess biophilia is what we were, mm -hmm. you know, beginning to talk about. Um, and, how important those things are. I mean, it's so well understood now that people who exist in buildings which have, you know, plants in them, you know, which mm -hmm. have greenery in them, where they're mm -hmm. kind of like, where they can see and feel and smell natural materials mm -hmm. are happier people, you know, less stressed, they sleep better, their heart rates are lower, mm -hmm. you know, they're more productive. You know, um, in Australia, they've been carrying out this kind of research into office projects which are made of timber, which can demonstrate that, you know, uh, employees will work longer hours, <laughs> are less likely to leave that employer, you know, if they're in an environment which has kind of, you know, really good biophilic type properties. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, really. Um, so I want to I wrap this up by asking you if you can or if you're willing to summarize kind of that uh, future vision of architecture from your perspective. What's the... Uh, while Thistleton way of kind of changing the architecture world. Wow. What are the things that maybe you're working on in the, in the near or maybe not so near future? One of the things that we're doing is to look at how we can reuse buildings. So when clients come to us with um, sites which already have buildings on them, how we can adapt those buildings, how we can recycle, reuse those construction materials. Um, we do a lot of teaching in the practice. And so we have three or four people in the practice that run different studios in architecture schools around London. Uh, we uh, have constant students, constant, um, not interns, but actually working paid students uh, in the office. That's <laughs> not controversial free in itself. Exactly. Um, you know, and we, and we talk always. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking in Toronto tomorrow, you know, and somebody in the office is talking somewhere in the world every week mm. about the work that we do. And it's not grandstanding. It's actually also soaking up the information that they're hearing in those places, listening to the questions that we get asked after those talks. And that information, you know, that kind of interrogation is being fed back into the practice. So that the practice becomes something of constant research. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's research in practice, the practice of research. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think those are great things that I'd love to see more architects tackle. Thank you. Or, or follow or follow your lead. Um, hopefully your talk in uh, the building show will make a difference. 
And I want to thank you very much for taking part of this. Pleasure. Nice to speak to you. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Until next time, ciao.